The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PR and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Now, this was an absolutely a great week of episodes. Not only did Rob McLaren join for a trial of the week looking at the Rivers Early Gold Directed Therapy in Sepsis Study but man, today's episode is just as great with our focus remaining in septic shock. And today's title is the AVP, the All Vasopressin Podcast. And Gretchen, Sasha, and Seth Bauer, vasopressin research and pharmacist extraordinaire from the Cleveland Clinic, joined me to answer all the questions you've ever had about vasopressin and sepsis. When do we add it? What dose? Can we predict responsiveness? How to discontinue? What patients do we avoid using vasopressin in? What are some cost considerations? Can we use vasopressin in other disease states? And much, much more. Also very excited to be at the ACP annual meeting. I land in Dallas on Saturday. Can't wait to meet some friends of the pod in real life. So if you see me, if you run into me, be sure to come say hey. I'll have some free swag, um, some awesome four-in-one pens, as well as some uh, uh, mini Sharpies that you could put on your badge. So come and say hi. Let me know that you you recognize you listen to the pod. I love meeting you, and we'll have some, some free giveaways. But without any further delays, a fantastic all-vasopressin-themed episode starts right now. Well, I am joined with two very special guests who need no introduction, Gretchen Sasha and Seth Bauer. Now, Gretchen is a critical care clinical pharmacist, and Seth is a clinical pharmacist, both working at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, You can find them on Twitter at Gretchen Sasha and at Seth R. Bauer. Man, both got your names. Look at that. Must be early adopters. So uh, Seth, Gretchen, thank you uh, both for joining today. Real treat and honor on my end. So thank you both. Thanks for, thank having, you for us. having us. Especially together. At the same time. We're here together. So, Always. so we were talking about uh, emails a little bit as we were planning and getting getting the episode set up. So I wanted to ask, and we don't know these answers, so um, there's been these kind of debates and things going around. What kind of email person are you, right? Are you a person that your inbox is zero? Is it in the hundreds? Or is it like 20,000? So I'll start. I'm a zero inbox person. If I have the alerts, it gives me anxiety. So right now I have three unread messages and that's because they've been sent since we recorded. So that's what I am. Uh, Seth, what's your, what's your inbox etiquette? My goal is to get to inbox zero. I rarely achieve said goal, but I'm, I'm also one who I leave my messages quote unread as a to-do list, not that I actually have not read them. So all of the emails in my inbox, I have read, but I still have the alerts because that is my to-do list. 
And to your point, that is what creates anxiety for me because those build up, right? Yeah. I'm looking right now and and now I see three to-dos right after this discussion. I'm like, hmm, bothering. Yeah, exactly. Gretchen, what about you? Well, Seth, Seth is, I'm chuckling at Seth because one of his to-dos is from me that I just sent right before <laughs> we started recording. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it probably comes as no surprise to those who actually know me that um, I'm a zero inboxer. Absolutely. I the, the thought of Seth saying that his are unread makes me a little sweaty and very <laughs> anxious. Um, although right now my inbox is at like 14 and that gives me anxiety. I leave my tasks in there, but, but they are cleaned up as possible. Although I will say in my credit, my personal email is like over 2000. So I have very conflicting approaches from personal and work email. That was the biggest curveball of them all is that you have an inbox in the thousands. Okay. Um, it hurts. It hurts looking at <laughs> my ass. It does. I wish the listeners could see Gretchen looks like almost ashamed that she admitted that live, that she has these unread emails. Very much so. Um, All right. Well, uh, thank you both for coming on, right? AVP, the all vasopressin podcast. So I thought we'll kind of start with kind of a little bit of an overview and then we're going to get into all of it and talk about all the questions with vasopressin and bringing on some of the people who we're going to be referencing uh, research that you're going to refer- see both of their names on throughout the episode. So perfect guests. Now, I guess first things first, how long have we even been using vasopressin as a vasopressor? Ooh, that's kind of a tongue twister. I guess I'll take this first because Gretchen will probably joke that I was around when vasopressin was invented or discovered because I'm that old. But vasopressin has been on the market here in the U.S. for nearly 100 years. I think the date is 1928 or so that vasopressin was first approved and marketed in the U.S. and was used initially as antidiuretic hormone or ADH. But it wasn't until the late 1990s where Donald Landry and others at Columbia found that patients with septic shock had lower plasma vasopressin concentrations compared to those with cardiogenic shock. And even in that initial study, they gave back vasopressin to patients and saw their blood pressure went up. Uh, And so the thought of, oh, maybe we should be thinking of a relative vasopressin deficiency and using endocrine replacement therapy took off in the late 90s and early 2000s. And since then, I I would say the usage of vasopressin has just exploded and continued to increase over time. So we're pretty familiar, right, that vasopressin is a non-catecholamine, but I guess how is vasopressin's mechanism of action different than those classic catecholamine vasopressors that we're all familiar with? I think I would start by saying they're probably more similar than what we often give them credit to. Vasopressin, catecholamines, even angiotensin 2, all augment G-coupled receptors, and in the end, they shove calcium into the cells to cause vasoconstriction of uh, vascular smooth muscle cells. Where they differ, though, is their pharmacology and what initial receptors they augment to get to that pathway. With vasopressin, we often think of the vasoactive effects as being through the V1 receptor, which cause vasoconstriction. We, I already mentioned the antidiuretic hormone properties. That's through the V2 receptor, which is on the renal collecting duct. And also there are V3 receptors, which are on the pituitary gland, 
And when those are augmented, they cause release of ACTH to increase cortisol. I think what's interesting about vasopressin in particular, though, is where these V1 receptors are located compared to catecholamines. With the catecholamine adrenergic alpha-1 receptor, essentially on all of the vasculature, arterial, venous side, uh, essentially everywhere. But with the V1 receptor, there's relative sparing of the pulmonary arteries and the afferent renal arterial. So this leads to less pulmonary vasoconstriction and increased glomerular filtration pressure because we're augmenting perfusion into the glomerulus and not uh, limiting that perfusion. So vasopressin has a little bit of unique mechanisms and also the receptor density in different places leads to some unique effects. That's a unique perspective too, kind of pointing out that they're a little more similar than we probably give them credit for. That's one of the first times that I've that I've really heard that mentioned. And when you actually explain it, it, it does make sense. Like I think we think of similarity as that classic um, you know, medicinal chemistry, like the structure. And it does look very different structure-wise, but but obviously mechanistic similarly. So um the focus of this, right, that we're going to be talking about is its is vasopressin's use in septic shock. And when we when we think, I like to rank things, It's it, I think that's my red flag, right, if we're talking about um, social media things. So I, I asked as we start, what would you all consider as like the landmark vasopressin studies? If, if someone came up to you, said, Gretchen, Seth, we're actually going to replace our famous presidents and we're going to let you all put abstracts of our, of our favorite vasopressin articles on that beautiful Mount Rushmore, what would, you, what would be featured there? Oh my gosh, well, if I'm putting them on Mount, Mount Rushmore, I might then do some shameless plugs, but I'm not going <laughs> to do that yet. Um, so I, I think when we talk about the landmark trials, I think this is going to vary. I mean, Seth and Mai's opinion is going to be really biased because all we do is eat, sleep, and breathe vasopressin studies, I feel like. <laughs> but personally, if I'm advertising this to um, to other pharmacists who are not as deep in the weeds as Seth and I are, I personally consider there being two landmark vasopressin trials. Um, again, just based on how I personally define what is quote unquote landmark. Um, so that would be those that we're probably the most familiar with, which is the BAST study from 2008 and then the VANISH trial from 2016. These are the largest and most robust RCTs that are available with this agent in septic shock. Um, you might also, or some might also consider uh, the Vanks 2 trial as another landmark trial. I personally might not b- bunch it into that category just because it's a pretty niche sample population of patients that just have cancer. There's also a 2003 Denser and colleagues trial that looks at vasopressin and vasodilatory shock. It was a small, albeit randomized control trial, but some might also bunch that into your landmark trials. Um, I'm sure this actually we'll probably talk about this too as we progress through, but there's one of the other earlier prospective trials that I feel that I reference more frequently is the 2010 Torgerson trial that compared two different dosing regimens of vasopressin. Um, I don't hear it as often discussed, but it is actually one of those that I would put up there because I refer to it more frequently. Um, But I probably would say those probably capture the top trials that I would consider quote unquote landmark for this agent. I guess all I would add to that is if the question is broad of what is the vasopressin Mount Rushmore, Gretchen and I 
live and breathe septic shock. So that's all that she focused on. But th- there's a whole world out there. And I'm sure the, the audience doesn't just treat patients with septic shock. So I, I, I would mention the Vanks 1 trial, which was in the broad syndrome of visitillatory shock, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. And the other study that is not well known is a study from Oliveira and others from Brazil, where this study was only published in abstract form, but they enrolled nearly 400 patients, which is about the same number as Vanish. And that trial often gets lost in the weeds because it's not published in a peer-reviewed journal, but it's often quoted in systematic reviews and meta-analyses. Yeah, I was actually going to also add to that um, if we're talking, because they're, I mean, there's, they're relatively, we just talked about it, there's few studies, RCT studies associated with vasopressin, that if I'm making a remote crush more, I probably would add some of these meta-analyses that, that Seth just talked about up there, because we don't have huge studies of this population, but some of our meta-analyses have provided some good insight into this agent. It almost feels like it feels like there should be tiers in a sense where you have the kind of vast and vanish up above everyone. And then you kind of have maybe the smaller, like you said, the Vanks too. Maybe we're looking at the Vanks, a little different population, and then kind of having some of those reviews, maybe the patient level meta analyses kinds of things. So um, that's a really good point. But I always like to to point out too, when we're, when we're talking about this is like um, those two trials are really big studies. They're really big randomized like vasopressor studies, and that is uncommon in our common vasoactive agents, right? There are a few, but not as many. So vasopressin is a pretty well-researched drug, and we'll, we'll certainly get into some of those things. Now, building from those studies into our guideline recommendations, what do, what do those surviving sepsis campaign guideline recommendations, what do they state vasopressin's role is in septic shock? So I love looking back at all of the iterations, and actually vasopressin has been mentioned and discussed in each iteration of the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines, all the way back to the first one in 2004. Um, And the strength of its recommendation has actually increased over time, all the way up to what we have now in the 2021 iteration, where it's actually suggested for the first time as the second line adjunctive agent to either add to norepinephrine rather than adding epinephrine, which in past iterations, they've had varying recommendations, but the 2016 um, recommended either or vasopressin or epinephrine as the second line agent. So we're starting to see now the surviving sepsis campaign actually tease out vasopressin as their, however you want to call it, first line adjunctive agent or their second line agent on top of norepinephrine, um, rather than just continuing to escalate those doses of norepinephrine in patients that are not at their goal map. Um, So it's really interesting to see the progression of it as we've gotten more data, gotten more information on our other pressors as well. It started to be teased out for the general septic shock population as the first line adjunctive agent. And I guess what I would note here is the suggestion for use of vasopressin, which is is it always interesting wording, and I've recently become more familiar with how GRADE is used and guidelines are developed. But the, the idea here is that it's a weak recommendation, so it's a we suggest instead of a we recommend. And the reason why it's a weak recommendation is if we look at the entire body of evidence 
there is not high certainty that vasopressin improves outcomes. And for that reason, it gets a weak recommendation. The, the wording here of weak, I think, is a little bit of a misnomer because in our current environment, we think of strong and weak as, you know, this one's good and that one is bad. But this is more related to how grade was developed and is not necessarily a knock on how vasopressin should be used. It's really about the certainty of evidence. So is that generally how you all use vasopressin in your practice in the care of septic shock treatments in the way that the guidelines kind of say they, you know, um, adding for patients with inadequate MAP levels? Is that how you all do it or do you stray from that at times? Well, the one thing I want to add to from what the 2021 guidelines say is that they actually also introduced this concept of um, when should we initiate vasopressin. So they inserted this remark and it says something along the lines of, in our practice, vasopressin is usually started when the dose of norepinephrine is in the range of 0.25 to 0.5 mics per kilo per minute. Um, now we can debate, and I'm sure we probably will debate whether or not we think this dosing range is considered early or late, um, but it is at least the first time that they seem to be indicating that thought should be taken into regards of when we are initiating this agent. So now all that is to say, um, if I do have a standard patient, which you know doesn't really exist, um, a standard patient with septic shock on escalating doses of norepinephrine, I, I really don't often stray from this recommendation. This is my standard approach. Um, of course, that's always taken into account, like the context of um, ensuring that my vasopressor selection is appropriate for that patient. Um, that's probably a whole different podcast and discussion. But again, um, in the general patient population, I do feel it's appropriate to initiate vasopressin in. I do follow these recommendations. I might actually initiate it a little bit earlier, and we can talk a little bit more about that, um, but I don't often deviate. Nick, you asked the wrong people this question, right? Because uh, <laughs> we, we are vasopressin lovers unabashed. And so, yeah, we, we use vasopressin all the time, all the time. And, and, and it is the what I would call first-line adjunctive agent that I recommend in the typical patient with septic shock. So when to add vasopressin is probably one of the biggest questions like you mentioned. Do we have any answer? The, the guidelines make that recommendation based on expert opinion. Do we have any other evidence other than truly like a consensus or an expert opinion um, for when to truly add on vasopressin? Oh, gosh, do I love this kind of question. <laughs> so um, it's, it's actually been the focus of my research for quite some time. And this is for several reasons, but also um, in light of the vast subgroup analysis that found a lower mortality rate in the subgroup of patients that had less severe shock. Those patients, um, when they were randomized to receive vasopressin, had lower rates of mortality, and they defined less severe shock as requiring less than 15 mics per minute of norepinephrine at randomization. Um, now, of course, these results are from a subgroup analysis, but they've always stuck with me, um, and I always thought it was something that needed to be investigated further. Um, we know already that there are other interventions out there like antibiotics in which timing is important and can, it can impact outcomes. So why wouldn't this apply to our other therapies like vasopressors and vasopressin? Um, so I think 
I think many would argue that we don't have an answer to this question, at least not with large randomized controlled trials. And I agree with this to a point for sure, absolutely. But there is some data that I think is noteworthy um, and that we can discuss. Most of it is observational, um, but some of it does indicate that there can be an association with the timing of vasopressin initiation though. I mean, it may be a secondary analysis, right? But that is the biggest study we have of vasopressin use in this population. So, um, give you know, you mentioned this has been the the focus of your research. So, have you have you had any um, you know publications or or findings to say kind of lead you one way or the other to help kind of answer some of this question? Yeah, and I mean, we've done research in this area, but it's and it's not even just us. There's actually been quite a few observational, um, some pretty small randomized controlled trials, too, or prospective studies, I should say, um, regarding the timing of vasopressin initiation. Um, they a lot of them are conflicting. Some see a benefit with early initiation. Some see no impact of the timing of initiation. Um, what I at least personally take from this conflicting piece is that the majority of the trials that have found no association with timing looked at timing based on the temporal time or the clock time or the time from shock onset. And, and this is, I think, where we need to take a step back and talk about what does timing mean, too, before we can talk about what the results are. So you can describe the timing of initiation of this therapy in many ways, right? I mean, you can talk about it temporally, like I just mentioned, or clinically at the bedside, I personally think it's easier to look at clinical markers as a trigger to initiate vasopressin, kind of like what we've already discussed of what VAS did, which is looking at the norepinephrine dose requirements or even how severely ill or how hypoperfused the patient is by what their lactate concentration is. Um, so to highlight, you know, shameless plug, one of our uh, institutional evaluations that we looked at, which, which was the largest evaluation that I know of, at least to date, that looked primarily at the question of the timing of initiation. We included over 1,600 patients, and we looked at each of these three timing variables, so the norepinephrine dose, the lactate concentration, and then the timing from shock onset, and tried to evaluate each of their association with in-hospital mortality. And what we found was increasing predicted probability of mortality as the norepinephrine dose at vasopressin initiation increased. So we, we say these results all the time. They're just so ingrained in my brain. Specifically, what we found was the odds of mortality increased by over 20% for each 10 mic per minute increase in the norepinephrine equivalent dose at vasopressin initiation. Now, that was up to an initi initial dose of 60 mics per minute of norepinephrine. And after that point, there was no association between uh, when vasopressin was initiated and mortality likely because it was futile or just initiated too late at that time. We also found a similar linear association between in-hospital mortality and lactate concentration. As that lactate concentration at vasopressin initiation increased, the predicted probability of in-hospital mortality increased as well. Also, like I talked about with those conflicting findings, when we looked at the clock time or the time from shock onset, we found no association between that time and, uh, and in-hospital mortality. So I think it's um, important to, to kind of circle around to all of the studies that we have. So when we look at these studies that have shown this positive association, and then there's some that have not shown association, I think it's pretty clear to say when we talk about the timing of vasopressin, vasopressin as a clock time, time from shock onset, there doesn't seem to be that association there. 
But when we talk about it from a perspective of the norepinephrine dose threshold or the lactate concentration, it's pretty consistent that it seems to be in patients in whom you're going to start vasopressin, you should start it at lower norepinephrine doses and lower lactate concentrations to get the most benefit from this agent. I'll pick up on one key piece that Gretchen said just to maybe counterbalance this or frame it in context for the audience relative to the other literature. The key here is that all of the studies that Gretchen mentioned of observational studies, all of the patients in those studies eventually got vasopressin. So they, the studies were not a comparison of early vasopressin versus no vasopressin at all. They were crystal ball is telling you you're going to get vasopressin eventually in your course. And if that crystal ball is telling you, yes, I'm going to use vasopressin, lower norepinephrine dosage is better than waiting until you get to a higher dosage. The, the reason I think this distinction is important, though, is there are subgroup analyses and even an individual patient data meta-analysis that suggested that compared to not giving vasopressin at all, starting vasopressin at lower norepinephrine dosages is not associated with improved outcomes. So I think it's a little bit of how are you slicing this pie? If you're a vasopressin naysayer and you say, I don't use vasopressin ever, then that's fine. I don't think early start or late start really matters. But if you're saying, I'm in that camp of vasopressin users, it's a high, high, highly common drug in my practice, then I think these data do apply. And if you're going to eventually give vasopressin, then uh, lower norepi doses seems to, to make a lot of sense. When I like that you pointed out, right, the, the guidelines have it in weight-based. So let's just quickly say in the range of 25 to 50 mics per minute, right, from what you're finding, someone could literally be starting it in the appropriate range, and that's a 25 mic difference, almost 50% change. And so, you know, I think these are things to consider. And and for the record, right, the, the listeners know I'm team early multimodal vasopressor. So I'm of the I'm of the mindset, like once you get double digits, I'm asking for it. Um because I think that, and I think the, the thing on timing is really important too, because these patients present differently. Our ER colleagues know you have the crashing septic shock patient who comes in and you're starting the norepi as you're resuscitating them, right? That's somebody you might want to put that on right away. But we also have the person that they come in and they have sepsis and then they slowly develop septic shock and their pressure goes, people, they present differently. So um, I like that. Um, emphasis on we should be using other markers like lactate or norepidose rather than looking at truly time from from presentation. That's a, a really well-detailed answer to the first of many nuanced questions as we get in as we get into this. Now, let's talk about dosing here. This is going to be a multiple choice question, which isn't very common. Um, what is the most appropriate vasopressin infusion rate? Is it 0.03 units per minute, 0.04 units per minute, or other and then I guess the only other part of that would be how do we define appropriate? What it like? What does most appropriate mean? Do you all think in this setting? Nikki led Gretchen into a soapbox item of hers, and so I'm I'm going to take this opportunity to step up onto one of my soapboxes and and maybe be a little bit controversial here because I think the answer to this question really depends on one's perspective. When I talked about the history of vasopressin. A lot of people think of vasopressin as endocrine replacement therapy, but another camp of people think of this as a vasopressor. So 
if you're thinking endocrine replacement therapy, how do we know the right dose to replace that deficiency? We found in, or not we, but Landry and colleagues all the way back in the 90s found that a dose as low as 0.01 units per minute can restore plasma levels to be similar to that of cardiogenic shock. And they literally said, well, you know, we don't want it to be 30. We want it to be around 100. So instead of giving 0.01, let's give 0.04. And that's what they came up with as their dose to replace the deficiency. But if you're in the team vasopressor camp, then why not titrate vasopressin to your goal map like any other vasopressor? So what the most appropriate dose is really depends on what perspective you have. But I think that the at least the prevalence data and point prevalence with cross-sectional studies suggest that the vast majority of people think about this as a fixed dosage infusion. So because of that, I'll infer that they think about it as endocrine replacement therapy. And maybe later on, we can talk about this titration and vasopressor dosages later on in the discussion. But I, in the end, I don't, I don't think there's a substantial difference if you pick 0.03 or 0.04 as your fixed dose. I'm only aware of one study that specifically tried to address this question, and this was from, from our group, where we looked at about 1,500 patients across our health system. In, I had two major takeaways from that. One was that there's huge variability in how people dose vasopressin across our health system, whether it be the type of hospital or the type of ICU, where we found that our community hospitals were using 0.04 dosing and our main campus academic hospital were using 0.03 and our medical ICUs were using 0.03 and our surgical ICUs were using 0.04. And I think that the difference comes from how do you fit yourself into this history of the evolution of vasopressin and what did you learn at one point and what are you adapting to over time? So that, that was big take home one to me and, and quite a shock to be transparent that I didn't realize that we were going to be that different. But the second would be that we didn't detect a difference between these two dosage regimens, meaning 0.03 or 0.04 and hemodynamic response or mortality. Now, I, I will couch that a little bit by saying that despite our best efforts with this statistical approach, there's likely residual confounding, again, because the patients that got those doses are so different. We tried to do fancy stats like uh, IPTW and other things to make them look as similar as possible, but I think that really limits the interpretation. But the one of the take-homes I would have is if there were substantial differences between those doses, then then that probably should have come out in, in our analyses. So I don't think that the differences are huge. But what is different is cost, right? So if you put a patient on 0.04 regularly versus 0.03 regularly, for an individual patient, that's about 14 units more of vasopressin per day. And from a health system perspective, again, if you're team vasopressin, that, that difference is probably meaningful from a cost perspective, and I'm sure we'll talk about cost at some point. So I think that my perspective here is I, I kind of split the difference of endocrine replacement or vasopressor and say, all right, fine, I'll, I'll give in. We mostly think about this as uh, endocrine replacement therapy, so start at 0.03 and see what happens. 
And if your patient does great, great, then you didn't need a higher dose. But if your patient didn't do great on 0.03, then we need to think about an alternative plan. And maybe that alternative plan means a higher vasopressin dosage. The, uh, the thing I'll add to that, too, is Seth kind of mentioned um, your practice can come with your historical perspective of it. What's interesting, too, is is if you were to actually, because, I mean, who else other than maybe us has done this, but actually look back into all of the recommendations throughout the years and the iterations of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines, almost every one of those iterations gives a different dosing recommendation. They first initiate or first recommended a dosing range of anywhere from 0.01 to 0.04. Then they said, no, do 0.03. Then they said, no, maybe 0.03 to 0.04. Now they're back to 0.03. So that can also, like Seth is saying, impact how you use it as to which guideline you look back on historically and think about and comes to mind. Um, I will say my approach, though, is very similar to what Seth described as well. Um, and, and I interpret that those studies the same way. So I initiate at 0.03 in my patients. So, Seth, you mentioned something that I want to ask about, and we're going to definitely get into cost because I have some thoughts on it. I'm sure you all do, too. Why do we not see this drug titrated in practice despite trials having an actual vasopressin titration arm, right? The Vanish trial, they titrated it up to 0.06 units per minute. So why would you? Why do you think most people think of it as um, endocrine replacement therapy versus a true, quote-unquote, titratable vasopressor? I think that it probably does go back to that core of where people think about it as endocrine replacement. And so for that reason, they think, well, I just give this dose to replace my deficiency. And I know that that's what I need. The, the trials using vasopressin as a titratable dose mostly incorporated that design element. So we're talking about fast and vanish mostly here because vasopressin was compared to titrated norepinephrine. So to maintain blinding, they had to titrate the study drug, which was vasopressin, versus the control drug, which is norepinephrine. And, and I will note that the dosages that they used are also partially what informs our practice. So VAST used doses up to 0.03 units per minute, but Vanish used doses up to 0.06 units per minute, which I think is often lost in, in the weeds of comparing these studies. But I think that the reason it isn't titrated is, yes, based on history, but then also based on logistics. So I think we're all living in this world of the Joint Commission driving how we write orders and how people do things. And it's really hard to have one of our nursing colleagues go from, oh, titrate norepinephrine here. But then when your map is here and your, your uh, norepidus is here, go to titrate the vasopressin. It started at 0.01, but then titrate vasopressin first versus norepi first. And it gets really convoluted. And to simplify that, I think a lot of people just default to the easy, and that would be fine. I'll just do this endocrine replacement thing. And like, like that old infomercial, set it, forget it, walk away. And that's how we think about vasopressin. I, I think that that's the easy thing to do, but I don't know that it's the right thing to do. So when we, let's kind of talk about, this question's geared more towards our, our fixed dosing. And with that fixed dose, 
I'm, I'm always curious, is there any impact of weight extremes or large, or I guess even really small BMIs? Do we adjust based on that? I live in Indiana. We got some Hoosiers here. So am I given, you know, Meemaw who's 60 kilos and then the 160 kilo farmer, are they getting the same vasopressin dose? Do we, has that ever really been looked at? So it, it sounds weird to think that that we don't adjust at this point in time. We all know this in practice. We, we don't do that, especially when you're talking about the scenarios like you just, just mentioned. And we know when we talk about our other pressors, there are some of our agents with some institutions that do titrate based on dose. Our institution doesn't. We've talked about data that doesn't use weight-based dosing. But it always comes up in question, and I think it's such a great question. It's actually interesting because this was a question that we had early on as we started to dive more into our abilities to evaluate our internal patients who received vasopressin. And and it it honestly was one of the first things we did, and we looked at this. We looked at whether or not there was an association between weight BMI cutoffs, a couple of different factors of evaluating weight-based strategies for vasopressin, and then looking at the associated hemodynamics effects once vasopressin is initiated. And we actually found no association between any of these different weight cutoffs or BMI cutoffs and the uh, clinical effects associated with vasopressin. So at this point in time, there doesn't seem to be data that indicate a need to adjust the dosing of vasopressin based on a patient's body weight or BMI. And then kind of the last thing I always like to talk about with dosing is, is our adverse effects. And does vasopressin have unique adverse effects or maybe does it increase or decrease the risk of our classic, um, you know, catecholamine, ADEs, what, what does that um, profile look like? It's not necessarily unique to vasopressin, but compared with catecholamines, vasopressin causes more digital ischemia, and that has been shown in several meta-analyses, so I think it's a pretty consistent finding. The adverse effects we think of with catecholamines, often at the bedside, we think about heart rate, and vasopressin actually is associated with decreased heart rate, whereas catecholamine, specifically norepinephrine, is associated with tachyarrhythmias. So vasopressin can spare that heart rate and has been associated with lower risk of AFib. And there are a lot of other adverse effects that are listed in the product labeling, but they're pretty rare. I, I don't think I hold much worry for those. But the one to maybe note is hyperbilirubinemia. The, there have been a fair number of reports with increasing bilirubin levels, and this seems to be dose-dependent. And so if you're one who's using higher doses of vasopressin, this may be an adverse effect to watch out for. And the mechanism here is thought to be to due to decrease hepatic blood flow, and that leads to increased bilirubin concentrations. But at lower dosages of vasopressin, and when I'm saying lower, like 0.03 and lower, this is probably not that common of an adverse effect. So we've likely all experienced this phenomenon where you you add vasopressin to your patient and the norepi rate comes down dramatically. Your maps look so good. Everything's great. 
or you add your vasopressin and it feels like it's not doing anything, right? I've sometimes had docs be like, are we sure they added this in the IV room? It's like, yes, I know. We know they did. So are we able to predict who may respond favorably to vasopressin and those who may not? I, I love this description because I definitely agree. It's something that I never make always and never statements, but I feel like we have to be able to say here, everybody has experienced this. We wouldn't be using vasopressin anymore, right? In light of these, you know, non-specific findings with VAST and Vanish that might say that overall there's no benefit to its use. Well, why do we keep using it? It's because we're all experiencing this phenomenon. Our patients, at least some of them, are responding favorably to it. Now, I think predicting who can respond is a great question. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a pin in it for one minute because I think we need to talk a little bit more about this phenomenon, as you called it. So it, we can t- call it hemodynamic response, if you will, positive hemodynamic response, however you want to associate it or, or label it. Um, we looked into this as well, and what we found in is, is in a sample of almost 1,000 patients who received vasopressin, actually 45% of them had this positive hemodynamic response. We were able to get a number associated with it. Um, and what we, the way we defined this positive hemodynamic response was achieving that goal mean arterial pressure of 65 and having a reduction in their background catecholamine dosage or norepinephrine utilization, and that was six hours after vasopressin initiation. initiation. So again, we're at the bedside. We start vasopressin. We see these things. Their echo map, their pressors come down. We think they've responded to vasopressin. What we actually found in the study, though, was having this response was independently associated with reduced ICU and 28-day mortality. So we know, you know, this sounds great. This phenomenon is wonderful at the bedside, but it's also associated with improved outcomes for our patients. So this, to me, is the key on why we need to continue to utilize vasopressin because there's a subset of about half of our patients who favorably respond to it. So then the question becomes, who responds? And so at this point, there actually has been a decent amount of subsequent evaluations that have started to look at various populations, characteristics, phenotypes, factors, whatever you would like to call them, and to determine who responds. So I will say the overall spoiler alert is the jury's still out on this, at least personally, that's what I would say. We still have much to learn, but we have a little bit of insight into this. So we know lower lactate concentrations have been associated with improved hemodynamic response. Once again, I'll say hinting towards this earlier initiation. Yeah. There could be some role with genetics. Um, I think that's an area that definitely still needs research. We talked earlier that weight doesn't play a role. Um, One study implied that pH may impact responsiveness as well. So the lower the pH, the less likely the patient actually is to respond to vasopressin. But all of that to say is we need more data in this area. Um, And at this point in time, we don't really have a clear-cut picture of how to predict who may respond to uh, this drug. Prediction is something that is a challenge. I think it's part of our common language, but from a statistical perspective, prediction means something very different. And maybe I'll just leave that soapbox and and not go there because we we could, again, extend this podcast even longer. But I I will maybe be the counterbalance to Gretchen and say that, that there is a very nice study in pharmacotherapy from the Barnes group or WashU group where they tried to predict vasopressin response with fancy things like machine learning, and they couldn't do it. And, and so that 
that comes back to can you actually figure out who at the bedside is going to respond? And I would say, I, I don't know that we can at this point. We have some clues of maybe these factors should weigh into our decision-making, but I, I don't know that we can predict. And, and half of the people that we give this drug to having no blood pressure effect is is um, a little concerning. So finding that that right population is, is really what's driving a lot of our work and work from others, uh, finding the right niche for the, this, this drug. Uh, Nick, if you're keeping track, I think we're up to like three other podcasts that we said we can go on soapboxes about things on. <laughs> Wait, so I have to ask though. So we're talking about responders and non-responders, and I know this would probably still be in more of like the the research side, and maybe not at the bedside. But like, are vasopressin levels a thing? Is that going to be coming where we can get a level, and if it's low, we start it, and if it's normal, we don't. Well, vasopressin levels are very much a thing, um, but kind of like you're alluding to, they're really not readily available at probably the vast majority, if not all. Again, I'm not going to say an always statement or an all statement, but probably most institutions, at least outside of a research setting like you're alluding to. Um, I think the discussion around vasopressin levels is a great one. So if we're talking about vasopressin, like Seth had been talking about too, as an endocrine replacement, it would make sense that maybe there's some play with the patient's baseline vasopressin concentrations, and maybe you would see a benefit in one population depend, depending on what their baseline level is. Um, we, we looked at this again. I'm going to feel like a broken record. We looked at this. We looked at this. Um, but we did. We looked at this in some capacity, at least at our institution. And with the data that we had, we actually did not find an association between vasopressin concentrations and hemodynamic response. Now I'll note that those vasopressin concentrations were while the patient was on vasopressin, they weren't baseline vasopressin concentrations. It, additionally, it was a small study. The timing of initiation wasn't necessarily taken into account. So there is still a question remaining at this stage with what the patient's baseline vasopressin concentration is and what their associated response down the line would be. Funny, you started by asking, is vasopressin levels a thing? And I still remember the image in my head of Gretchen in the lab, pipetting plasma as we were checking vasopressin levels for this study that she mentioned. And, and that's something that as soon as I heard that question, I was like, yeah, they're a thing. Gretchen, you know, <laughs> went, went to the bench and she, she was there pipetting. Um, but I, I think that what I will say is we didn't check baseline vasopressin levels in these patients because at least at the timing of when we're thinking about checking a vasopressin level, they're almost consistently low. So this was done in VAST where the median time to enrollment in VAST was about 11 hours. And in those patients, the baseline vasopressin concentrations were less than 10 picograms per ml, and the confidence interval around that was tiny, meaning consistently we know that levels are going to be low. So I don't know that baseline levels will help us know who's going to do better with vasopressin or not in the average patient. So one of your um, hemodynamic colleagues, Patrick V. Ruszewski, came on and renin levels are um, the future is what he's telling me. When he talks, I listen. And so is there any interaction between like, renin and vasopressin at all? Is that something that's been researched? 
Yeah, I think that's a uh, a great question. Um, hi, Patrick. Um, and so I think at um, at this point in time, at least that I'm aware of, I don't believe there's any data that have evaluated any type of interaction or association between renin concentrations and vasopressin response, particularly. I mean, Patrick will talk about and has talked about the renin and angiotensin II utilization and that association there, but with vasopressin specifically, I don't think that data is out there. Again, I think that this question, though, brings up a great point, too, though, in this entire discussion of establishing that there's really just so much that we don't know with vasopressin. Um, and I mean, all of our vasoactive agents, sure, sure I'll lump in ANG2 in there, too. There's so many likely different factors and variables that have the potential to interact and impact with the patient's overall response to these agents that we just haven't yet evaluated that haven't been discovered. Um, so I think that brings home a great question, but I'm just not aware of data at this stage. I think we have reasonable indirect evidence, though, that the answer to that question is probably. I think Gretchen's mentioned the association between lactate concentrations and vasopressin response, and we know that renin is a better indicator of perfusion than lactate. And so I, I think probably there's some association, but I'm not aware of anybody that has tried to go looking for it. So there, there's a plug for research in the future for any of the listeners. I think we've plugged a bunch of different research questions. Plug gods over here. That's right. A hundred percent. Now, we talked about vasopressin's unique mechanism of action, and we've also talked about there are some patients that respond amazing, right? And so from your all's perspective, are there patient-specific, probably disease states is more what I'm getting at, um, or, or organ dysfunctions where you're going to make the push to give vasopressin even earlier than you normally would for your standard run of, as standard as they could be, you know, your, your classic septic shock patient. Are there others that you're pushing to give it towards a little earlier? I'm not sure that we can recommend vasopressin any earlier than a neurophy dose of like 10 to 15 mics per minute, but, but this question of special populations is intriguing. I think because of the mechanism with vasopressin and that our glomerular arterial effects, we think about patients with kidney dysfunction and maybe vasopressin makes sense there. And there are data here, but I think the short answer is I wouldn't use this to drive my thinking. There was a subgroup analysis of VAST where those in the AKI risk category of rifle who were allocated to vasopressin had less frequent progression of their kidney disease and lower mortality. And that was really the impetus of VANISH. And VANISH sought to look at these kidney effects as one of their primary endpoints. In fact, there were two co-primary endpoints, and both of those kidney-related primary endpoints were neutral. They did not find that vasopressin benefited those renal outcomes or kidney outcomes. The one that is often quoted is renal replacement therapy incidence was lower with vasopressin, but I'll, I'll couch that a little bit and say that that was a secondary outcome. And there is a lot of clinician decision-making that goes into renal replacement therapy or kidney replacement therapy. And it's clouded a bit because vasopressin is known to lower serum creatinine levels and increase urine output, which are sometimes part of the decision-making of kidney replacement therapy. So you may have had some confounding there of why the vasopressin 
patients didn't have as frequent initiation of KRT. So maybe not the renal piece. I, I think that it's intriguing, but I don't think that the data are great to say use that to guide. But the one that has seemed to enter into common practice is your patient with pulmonary arterial hypertension and has septic shock complicating that chronic disease state. The, I mentioned earlier, vasopressin selectively spares the PA, so you're going to get less pulmonary vasoconstriction there. And folks have implemented this into their practice, but I, I think that it's an interesting question because animal models and ex vivo studies have conflicting results of whether vasopressin increases pulmonary pressures or not. So I, I don't know. And there's an active trial with the cardiac surgery population trying to get more data on this particular question of if you have elevated pH pressures, is vasopressin better than norepi? But I think this is probably one that has entered into common practice just based on the mechanism. And that's an area where I know our intensivists and, and even I find myself thinking maybe vasopressin would be good in this special population. But, but that might be the only one where I think differently compared to just using norepi dose to guide my thinking. I asked that question because if um, someone has catecholamine-induced arrhythmias, I feel like I'll move towards trying to use vasopressin earlier. And then if you have the really sick um, variceal bleed patient, like in cirrhosis, where their pressure's low, you may need it. So those are those are two and and um, those are two areas that I will and like you said I wouldn't necessarily say I'm saying we need to start that up front but I'm saying if we're indi- if it's indicated our pressure's still going low I feel like I might make that argument a little sooner rather than later in those but that's really good good insight what is the I've heard people refer to the uh, um, bedside ultrasound or the, like the echo as the new stethoscope right when patients are in um, septic shock and especially refractory, we're adding things on, um, bedside echoes are much more common. We're going to try to understand a patient's cardiac physiology. So are there echo findings that would influence whether you would or would not reach for vasopressin? I think that this is going to be a couched answer in the sense that I'm going to say it depends. And I think it, it depends on when was that echo done? If you're telling me this patient has an outpatient echo three months prior to their septic shock admission, I I think that that only holds a little bit of weight in my decision-making because we know that hemodynamics change from the shock itself. And hemodynamics even change from norepinephrine initiation on what the echo parameters end up looking like. So if if you're talking about a, quote, baseline echo, maybe that will help. But if you're saying, oh, I have a patient here where they're in shock, I started norepi, and then I got a point of care ultrasound or POCUS or bedside echo, whatever we want to call it, and I see these things, then I think that that can be very useful. And we asked this question at at our shop and only ended up with about 100 patients because we wanted to very specifically narrow that population to that question of that scenario of, I had an echo, I was in shock, well, my patient was in shock, on norepi, and they eventually got vasopressin. Are there any echo parameters that would influence some sort of outcomes? And we're, 
the short answer here is that there were echo parameters that were different between vasopressin responders and non-responders. But I, I think I would reorient that a bit and say, if you're seeing LV systolic dysfunction in that patient scenario, and you decide to initiate vasopressin, the response rate is substantially lower in those with LV systolic dysfunction who get vasopressin versus those without LV systolic dysfunction. So, and here that was defined as an EF of less than 45%. So if you have one of our intensivist colleagues saying that LV looks down, that would be a, a bit of a scare point to me to say using vasopressin might not be the best idea. And, and I know that these data are preliminary and there's other studies going on, but that would be the one on ECHO where I, I would have hesitation about vasopressin. So when we think of, we're going to get a boxing ring, we think of our two common adjunctive agents for septic shock. In one corner, we have vasopressin, your, your, your heavyweight favorite, and the other side, you have corticosteroids. So let your biases flow. But just explain why. Um, I want to know, do you think vasopressin or corticosteroids are are more important? Is it first line? Maybe you think they should be added at the same time, which, uh, spoiler, that's my take. Uh, that's that's generally what I, my practice. But I'd be curious what your thoughts are on, um, let me rephrase it, why vasopressin is more important than corticosteroids. <laughs> um, I... Uh... I'm actually really interested to hear what Seth's take on this is as well. We uh, clearly, I mean, we talk about vasopressin all the time, him and I, but we don't talk about steroids very much and where that would play. Um, I will say that the correct answer, the short answer is we, we don't know. So there's really no robust data that directly compare, at least that I would call robust, that directly compare vasopressin to hydrocortisone or other corticosteroids for patients with septic shock that are going to assist us in deciding which should be initiated first or how to utilize these two agents in practice. Um, I, I do think we often think of these approaches as different approaches rather than complementary. Um, but I think that, like kind of like you alluded to, maybe we should be thinking of them complementary. I don't know. Are they, are they sequential? Are they at the same time? I, I don't think we know. We do know maybe from at least one animal model that corticosteroids can increase the expression of V1A receptors. So that may impact the effects of vasopressin. So some might think that there is an interaction between these two agents in which they assist the other. Um, so I'm a broken record here when I say we need more research into this question, um, specifically what order of these agents, which order these agents should be administered in. Is there a true interaction between these agents? Um, or, you know, should they be initiated at the same time? I will tell you at least my approach, um, which should not be surprising is starting these vasopressin early and first. Um, but I am also quick to initiate hydrocortisone. Um, I, I will be transparent as well. Um, so I'll either do both at the same time if I have a patient who, you know, the smell check, I feel like they're decompensating very quickly and severely. If I have a patient who's just, you know, escalating norepinephrine doses, they get up to 15, I'm going to pull out that vasopressin, but they're not really escalating at such a rapid increase or that slope in the norepinephrine dose change is not super high, then maybe I might just do vasopressin first. But I would say when I think of one, I usually start to think of the other. 
There were a few observational studies that have tried to look at this question, one of which was, I think, this last issue of pharmacotherapy tried to address that question, and one of which is from our, our friend Brittany Bissell-Turpin, where they try to look at which one comes first, and they actually had contrasting findings where the most recent article suggested that steroids may be better, and Brittany's work suggested that vasopressin might be better. But I, I think it in my opinion, a little bit depends on what are we intending to achieve with starting this second-line agent. If the goal here is increasing blood pressure, both of them can work. If the goal here is to improve patient-centered outcomes, then I would say you may be slicing this a little differently with corticosteroids. The, The steroids data are pretty consistent that if you start steroids, your blood pressure goes up. But where they're inconsistent is if you improve outcomes with corticosteroids. And the best data are using steroids in patients with really severe shock. And, the you know, we, again, another podcast, we won't talk about that here. But maybe the vasopressin population is different than the corticosteroid population that gains benefit. And maybe we're thinking early vasopressin for outcomes benefits, but we're thinking not early steroids for outcomes benefits because of all this collateral damage. And, we, we haven't talked about immunology yet, so I'll, I'll go there, but corticosteroids just wreak havoc on the immune system. And we always think about sepsis being this hyperinflammatory state, but we don't think about all the anti-inflammatory markers that are raised like IL-10 and all of those. And all of that immune dysregulation leads to chronic critical illness. And there's pretty decent data showing that steroids can wreak havoc on that immune dysregulation. And again, one plug for team vasopressin would be that vasopressin seems to be immune neutral, meaning that it doesn't cause immunodysfunction. And so maybe it could be an innocent bystander here in the sense of improving your blood pressure, but not doing badness. And and doing badness is what I worry about with corticosteroids. So most of our discussion has been starting vasopressin, how to start it, um, what dose to do it at. So let's talk about discontinuation, which I think is weirdly a polarizing topic when, when I've talked to people about it before. What Does the order of discontinuation matter? Thinking if someone's on norepinephrine and vasopressin, which one do you discontinue first? Do you stop the vasopressin or the norepi first? Do we, do we have data to show that it, that it matters one way or the other? I like I like the way you phrase this question um, because it is pretty nuanced um, and there actually is a decent amount of data to discuss regarding this question. But I think if I'm going to first answer what I like, which was the does it matter, I think I'm going to say no. And I think that there are probably plenty of people who are going to disagree with me on that um, based on the data that is available, but I don't know that I think it matters. So I'll I'll keep this answer brief, which, you know, I could go on and on about with all of the data that, that is available to it. Um, so there have been several trials that have evaluated this discontinuation order of vasopressin and norepinephrine. Um, what they found was that when vasopressin is discontinued first, there is more clinically significant hypotension that occurs. I, I think that the data are pretty consistent in that. But what I think needs to be done is breaking down that definition of clinically significant hypotension, which was a um, composite outcome in all of the studies, And what they showed was that this was largely driven by just a need for an increase in the dose of norepinephrine that the patient was on. 
Now, if I take away one presser, vasopressin, it's not surprising to me that you're going to need to increase your dose of norepinephrine to compensate for that loss. We can argue until we're blue in the face and we're not going to, obviously, about what the equivalent dose of vasopressin to norepinephrine is, but I'll stand that we don't know what it is. <laughs> so if you take away vasopressin, you're probably going to need to go up a little bit on your norepinephrine. So to me, the point that needs to be taken home from these studies is that there was no difference in clinical outcomes other than this clinically significant hypotension resulting because the norepinephrine dose needed to be increased. There's no difference in mortality. There is no difference in any of these other pieces. So because of this and because of the fact that it is easier to titrate norepinephrine for the many reasons that Seth kind of talked about earlier, that's why it's my practice to stop vasopressin first because it's easier for our nurses at the bedside to then adjust the dose of norepinephrine rather than having to worry about playing around with vasopressin if the patient's norepinephrine comes off first and then they still go hypotensive. Um, so yeah, I was going to say overall, I think it kind of just clarifies that I don't really think it matters. I just think it's easier to discontinue vasopressin first. I think that's a great point that you brought it back to our bedside nurse and practicality because um, when you do it the other way, you're going to get inundated with questions. There, you're going to have a protocol in your unit, and that nurse is going to ask the physician, and he's going to they are going to tell them something completely different, right? It just lots of lots of uh, room for like miscommunications there. Now, building off of that, I guess it would be part B of this. How do we discontinue it? And does that matter? Do you just, and this is assuming we're doing kind of our standard fixed rate. Do you just shut it off? Do you do the down titration, like follow like the Vaster Vanish? What's your all's general practice? Um, My practice is to just shut it off. Um, I will say with, with the caveat of we didn't really go down the dose, the, the pathway of, you know, how to escalate if we need to escalate our doses. But if I do have somebody who happens to be on higher doses of vasopressin, I don't think it's unreasonable to at least come down to our standard dose of 0.03. But in a patient who's on 0.03 units per minute, I will always just stop it. I won't come down from there further. Um, This was another question that we had when we were looking into the discontinuation order a little bit further, and we evaluated and compared the strategy of just abruptly discontinuing versus down titrating and found no difference um, in clinical outcomes between these two approaches. So to save, uh, you know, it's for ease of titration for the nurses at the bedside to save on cost and vasopressin bags overall. It is my standard practice to just discontinue it. I will say sometimes I will, um, from a cost perspective, and because I'm a vasopressin lover, if a nurse just hung a new bag of vasopressin, I might just tell them run that bag out um, rather than wasting what's already there and already strung. Um, But for the most part, I'll just stop it. Rachel mentioned this study of how to discontinue vasopressin, and it, it, it's an interesting question, but I, we already talked about statistical interaction before, so maybe I'll, I'll go back to that. There, there seemed to be some interaction between which drug you stop first and how you stop vasopressin affecting outcomes. And it, I won't go into all of the nuance of that analysis, but the short answer is, if you stop norepi first, meaning vaso is all that is left, then weaning vasopressin off was associated with, apparently, longer time to ICU discharge. But if vasopressin is the first one that you take off, then abruptly stopping the vasopressin was associated with longer length of stay. 
So I think it really depends on here what your approach to the cessation order is to maybe guide the pathway of stopping vasopressin. And again, th this is hypothesis generating. This was not a slam dunk uh, interaction or sub subgroup analysis. But it's at least an intriguing question of how one approaches that. And, and if we were to follow those data, it would be if you're going to stop vasopressin first, then weaning it off may be the better approach. But I, I agree with Gretchen. I, I think from a practical standpoint, on and off is a lot easier, but the, the data suggests that titrating down might be better. So a lot of us remember 2014, 2015, the vasopressin rebranding and the um, large increase in cost. So I hinted at this earlier, but is cost as big of a concern with the vasopressin in, 20, in October 2023 as many of us may think or remember from the rebranding that's right about eight, nine years ago at this point? I think the answer here is yes, because we're pharmacists and we always think about cost, right? It's always, it's always a big deal. And it, especially because departments of pharmacy are almost always in charge of the drug budget. So whatever we can do to lower drug cost is going to be relevant. And even though the cost of vasopressin has come down recently, it's still substantially expensive. And so cost probably does matter. The There is a cost-effectiveness analysis that looked at adjunctive vasopressors and septic shock and compared norepi monotherapy to either adjunctive vasopressin or even angiotensin II. And compared to those others, vasopressin was very cost-effective. In pharmacoeconomics, we often talk about this incremental cost-effectiveness ratio, or ICER, which essentially boils down to is how much money will that drug save compared to have a quality adjusted life here? And for vasopressin, it was only $20,000. So the, the ICER here for vasopressin was less than that of the airbags in your car. So from a cost effectiveness perspective, vasopressin makes a whole lot of sense. The challenge here, though, is who reaps the benefit of vasopressin? And this is where we go back to practicalities. And that is, the benefits of vasopressin are things like less AFib and less potentially kidney replacement therapy. Those benefits are realized by departments of critical care medicine, but all of the costs are realized by a department of pharmacy. So you have this siloed effect where that creates tension, where the clinical pharmacist is really right in the middle, because I'm sure the listener is much like how I view myself, and that is I have a foot in both of those two different departments, and I need to figure out how to appease both of them. And so th this tension is real. And part of me wants to say, use more vasopressin, and the other part says, use less vasopressin. But that's where negotiation and conversations really matter. And leaders in each of those two different departments need to understand the other's perspective. And we have been extremely successful at Cleveland Clinic where we have that discussion with our pharmacy leaders and say, this is why we're using so much vasopressin, and here's the benefit to the institution overall. And yes, we know that it's a lot for our drug budget, but in the end, it's the best thing for the hospital. And I, I think that that's probably the perspective I would take and not just focus on the individual drug cost. 
do either of you have any examples of like cost savings initiatives that either you all or, or other pharmacist colleagues have kind of um, implemented to to help balance because it's a balancing act like you said that's perfectly said that's exactly right we we are I feel like we are the middlemen between almost everybody we're the middlemen between the doctors and nurses right between the pharmacy department and the departments and things so how what are do you all have maybe some examples of of ideas or initiatives to help counterbalance that well, the easy one that we already talked about is using an initial dose of 0.03 units per minute. So less drug per day could be a way to lower drug costs. And I think that some of the others that have been described in the literature are lowering the amount of vasopressin in each bag. So only having 20 units in each bag can help you not waste more drug. And I think stopping vasopressin first could also be a cost-saving initiative in I think that that partially guides what Gretchen said as part of her practice. I think another approach that we took at 1.2, and this is if you're really splitting hairs when it comes to monitoring vasopressin use, was um, preventing nurses from being able to string a bag before a discussion with a provider on whether or not you're going to continue vasopressin after that bag runs out. So treat vasopressin on a bag-by-bag basis. Hey, I have an hour left. I have two hours left in my bag. Are we continuing or do you want to discontinue at this point in time and have it be a discussion before you, not to say waste a bag, but grab a bag, hang it, string it up, and then have to use it? Gosh, it'd be amazing if we could implement a system like that for lots of drugs, lots of infusions, to be honest with you. Um, So... Uh, the the meat of this AVP episode has, of course, been on um, septic shock, where we use it the most, where that's where you're all researching the most. But just broadly speaking, is there a role for vasopressin in our other states of shock, whether it's, you know, distributive or vasoplegic, cardiogenic, some of those other shock states? Do we do we know if vasopressin has a role for treatment in those? Maybe I'll start with cardiogenic shock only because you mentioned it. The cardiogenic shock scares me for using vasopressin based on the pharmacology and pharmacodynamics where we know this drug increases LV afterload without having direct inotropic effects. So in that classic patient with cardiogenic shock that already has depressed LV function, I worry that starting vasopressin may actually be harmful. There was a recent case series of 100 patients in critical care that gave vasopressin to their patients with cardiogenic shock, and I, I was fully expecting those patients to crash and burn, so to speak, but they, they found similar blood pressure response as what we see in septic shock. About half the patients had an improvement in their MAP and lower neuropathy doses needed, and they they hypothesized a bit and said, well, maybe there are some patients that have this cardiac reserve where they can overcome this increased afterload and they will have improved perfusion and the the improved perfusion from vasopressin improves other outcomes. I I think that that's a reasonable thinking there, but I worry about the opposite. I worry about that patient that does not have the cardiac reserve. And when you start vasopressin in that patient, you may actually be tipping them over the edge and maybe inducing more badness. And so I, I would be really hesitant with cardiogenic shock. Visibilatory shock is, I think, a, a totally different discussion in that visibilatory shock, say, after cardiac surgery, in many ways shares a lot of similarities to septic shock. I, I will say that they are 
completely different entities and their hemodynamics and outcomes. But it, it makes a whole lot of sense to use vasopressin in vasodilatory shock. And th this is often supported by the Banks trial, which we haven't talked about much here. But compared to norepi, vasopressin lowered the risk of this composite endpoint. And that composite endpoint was driven by acute renal failure, which was the STS definition, but not the definition that, that we commonly think of in sepsis. So I, I think that there is some rationale based on that study. But I will give an important caveat here is that the VINX study, I worry about external applicability, particularly to our practice. And th these are not novel thoughts. Other people have talked about these things. But th in this study, th their patients had 30-day mortality of 15%, median ICU length of stay of five days. 80% of the people got AFib. Our cardiac surgeons would be having a fit if we had those numbers. So I, I don't know that that study is directly applicable, but I, I think it makes a lot of sense to use vasopressin and vasodilatory shock. And so I, I think that it is commonly used and I, and I would support its use in, in that scenario, much like I would with vasopressin and septic shock. Yeah, the the Vanks and Vanks two, right? That's the the those are both done at a single center um, Brazilian hospital. Um, so obviously, some um, like like uh, so I said, some external validity questions. And you mentioned cardiogenic shock, right? That brings back to the echo findings and the and the study from that, right? That if if it looked like their EF was reduced, you that that shown signs to not do it. That's the argument against cardiogenic shock too. So kind of bringing it full circle to our to our sepsis and some of that cardiac dysfunction that can come. Um, in those patients. Well, what a, we, we got into, like I, like I told the listeners that we were going to be living in the weeds here. Cause these are all the vasopressin questions that I've always wanted to ask. And I, I got the experts on to try truly pick their brain. Is there any research from your group or others that we should be on the horizon for that might answer some of these um, really good research questions that we've kind of talked about throughout the episode? Well, um, for externally, at least, I can't quite say everything, at least, that's on the horizon with prospective research, just because I'm not quite aware of everything that's going on out there. I think the last time I checked clinicaltrials.gov when searching for vasopressin and septic shock, I think there were actually pretty few trials in the pipeline, which I don't think is super surprising because there's not really a market or a funding for vasopressin research, at least not prospectively. Um, what I at least can say is a re-summary of everything that I've said about of where we need more data um, and where hopefully we can get some more insight with some of our future studies, even with its observational research. So, you know, we need more definitive data on potentially supporting this association that we've seen, that we found with our observational data on the timing of vasopressin initiation. We need more insight into who responds to vasopressin and why. And we need more data into what to do with patients who don't respond to vasopressin and then how do we pivot our approach with non-responders. Um, at least these are just some of the initial things that I have been thinking about. Um, our group is, you know, toying with some of these questions, but trying to figure out, you know, what direction we, we go forward with this drug in the future. The one piece that I, I will just add to that is we talked about prediction, and I think that this is an area that's ripe for research into can you predict who will respond to a particular drug? Can you predict who's going to need 
more therapy? Can you predict what their outcomes are? So I think prediction modeling is something that I personally have a passion about and an interest in, and that's where my research uh, program is, is taking me right now. And so I think that this idea of how do we best treat these patients and can you even implement that at the bedside are, are really great questions that deserve a lot more research beyond our, our group. Uh, you, the listeners to this podcast are quite diverse and that diverse research input is really, really needed in this area because uh, we know that the Cleveland Clinic Health System is not like every other place on the planet. And so having that perspective from others and asking maybe even the same questions at their own shop, I think could be really, really helpful. So I, I invite anybody who has these questions to, to start into this research pathway because this is an area where there's a lot of opportunity. Okay, and this is your all's time to make your final. What are what are some big points you want to make sure that the that the listeners remember when we're talking about your all's favorite drug? Is vasopressin your favorite drug? I guess I should have asked that. I'm assuming yes, but is it your favorite drug? I also want you to to answer that as well. If we're talking about uh, septic shock, I would say yes, without a doubt, <laughs> it's my favorite drug. I don't know if I could pick a favorite drug in general outside of um, this specific niche population, but, but definitely, um, um, my take home points, uh, start vasopressin, start it early, uh, tell your institution to start it early and study it. I mean, we talked about so many different areas that need research. Um, so we need to keep pumping out some, some more trials. I think one of the biggest things too, is, is let's start taking some of these trials that did find an association and like Seth said, replicate them, use similar definitions so that we don't have 20 different definitions of hemodynamic response. Let's get some more consistency in some of the research that comes out here. Um, but yeah, take home, start it, start it earlier. This is the thing. It's like when my family member gets, gets, uh, uh, in, admitted to the hospital, I'm putting, I'm putting it on, I'm putting it on early and everybody knows about it. And, and I may or may not have done that actually. Uh, I'm still chuckling to myself by your question of, is this your favorite drug? And Gretchen knows this story. I, I was lucky enough to be invited to speak at CHESS last year. And one of the co-presenters in my session was Dr. Laura Evans, who is the first author on the 2021 Surviving Sepsis Guidelines. And we were bantering back and forth. And she, she said, oh, Seth, you're talking about vasopressin. Do you like vasopressin? And I said, yeah, it's my favorite drug. And the look on her face was horror like sheer horror. And I said, don't you have a favorite drug? And she's like, no, I don't have a favorite drug. And I'm like, oh my goodness, my goodness. But yes, vasopressin is my favorite drug. And I think that there are plenty of opportunities here that we could reiterate, but I, I would just defer to Gretchen here and say that vasopressin makes a whole lot of sense. It probably makes sense earlier rather than later if you're a vasopressin user. And I would say research is really still needed. Whenever I talk about vasopressin with other people, a lot of people think that all of their questions are answered, but the reality is that I don't think they are. I think that we still have more questions than answers. So there, there's a lot of opportunity here. 
Gretchen and Seth, uh, thank you all so much for joining me. Uh, not only are is all of your research uh, helping the patients, not only in Cleveland Clinic, but elsewhere, but I know all the listeners certainly learned a whole lot. This was so much fun. So remember, let them know uh, how awesome of a job they did and all their research at Gretchen, Sasha, and at Seth R. Bauer. Uh, greatly appreciate you both. Cleveland rocks. I completely agree. Um, thanks for coming on, you too. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. It's been great. Wow. Uh, can't thank Gretchen and Seth enough. What an awesome episode. Be sure to reach out and let them know what you thought at Seth R. Bauer at Gretchen Sasha, her name. Uh, let me know what you think at Pharmacy to Dose on your socials. If you want to shoot me an email, pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. And then, of course, the updated website, pharmacy to dose.com. The reference list is in that episode description as well as the website. And, folks, this is one of the best reference lists from an episode yet. So many good articles. So many good references on this download, but I hope you all enjoyed this as much as I did, but until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. The podcast provides general information only does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the contents and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call nine one one, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the critical care period disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.